welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Hello, and welcome to this special edition of the Addiction Connection, where we are going to be talking about COVID-19 today. This is uh, something we really didn't see ourselves doing, but uh, it's kind of like the automakers now involved in making respirators and ventilators. We're treating people with addiction, but now we're going to be treating people in this pandemic. Kind of an unexpected twist to our, I think, really to our careers. I think it's kind of how the addiction thing kind of happened. We are what we needed to be. So here we go. So how did this happen? Well, we have recently partnered with the uh, State Healthcare Center for COVID-19. And uh, the medical side of that is actually headed by Dr. Hick. And he's actually a disaster healthcare incident commander. That's so fancy. Uh, Yeah, and I think that kind of makes us disaster podcaster incident co-commanders. I I don't really know if that's a thing, but I is that I, a thing? It's not a thing. I just made that up just exactly now. I like it. So really, what this is all about is this is going to be the primer for what is happening with our echo uh, platform. We are now going to be two doing two echoes per week uh, in conjunction with uh, Dr. Hick and the state emergency response team to help educate rural Minnesota on this uh, pandemic. And every night after this 75-minute Echo Talk, which you can join by just emailing us at the Minnesota MN Opioid Echo at CatholicHealth.net or going to the MAFP, Minnesota Academy of Family Physicians website, you can join this 75-minute Echo that we will hold every Tuesday and Thursday starting at 12.15 going until 1.30 Central Time. And obviously, we are not COVID experts, although we have read extensively on this. We will be having numerous specialists on to help rural Minnesotan doctors learn how to take care of this particular patient group, whether it's ventilator uh, settings, whether it's infectious disease, uh, hospital care and hospitalist uh, support. That's going to be what uh, is going on. And with the help of Dr. Hick and his crew, uh, we're going to go ahead and and, uh, really work this problem. We'll also have updates from MDH, Minnesota Department of Health, every time we're on Tuesdays and Thursdays, giving the state updates. And then the cool thing is, is the evening of those 75-minute talks, we're going to sit right down here and do a quick little podcast summary for those of you who need the quick Cliff's Notes version yeah. of the day. Yep, no, just Those will just be the bullet points, the things that are most important takeaways really from that entire 75-minute uh, session. So maybe what we'll do, let's just move right into this. We're going to talk a little bit first about the history and some of the information about a disease that really was first uh, described just 113 days ago. So this is something that's, yeah, that is that, it is that scary. Um, And the reality is that really it was December 8th in uh, Wuhan, I think I said that correctly, that first, the first patient was actually uh, noted. And uh, in fact, that was... Uh, followed really just days later on the 31st of December when the World Health Organization uh, was actually informed of this case of pneumonia that had an unknown kind of etiology. And so 
uh, I think everybody was really caught off guard with this. I think there was some thought that there was probably a number of cases before that in November, but the first described one was December 8th. By January 11th, actually, they had the first known death, and so really just a couple of months ago. And it was actually a 61-year-old from that town uh, who also had some underlying health disorders. Really, when you look at it, it was back. It was late in January then that it moved to the UK, and uh, they had two patients there, both Chinese nationals, uh, that actually tested positive. And just one day later, uh, the public health emergency of international concern was announced by uh, the World Health Organization on January 30th. I think it it's really important to understand that. Uh, I think a lot of us uh, probably have uh, people that we know that are being taken off guard by this, a hint. And I think Italy was not alone in that. They initially uh, quote were quoted their Italian prime minister said there's, and I quote, there is no reason to create social alarm or panic. And in fact, I think we have a lot of people in this country, physicians included, who maybe th- don't think that this is something that was initially going to be a big deal. Uh, but obviously it has been. Early in uh, February then, there was actually a, uh, a death of a Chinese medic who was the person who actually had warned uh, everybody about the virus. He actually died from the uh, COVID-19. Later, by late February, we had our first death, and that was actually a man in his 50s. And it was uh, it was really uh, uh, the start of the problem for, for really our, uh, our country. By March 11th, of course, which was just a few weeks ago, uh, the World Health Organization declared this a pandemic, uh, which obviously we're in the middle of right at this time. And just uh, literally a few days ago, uh, uh, China announced that it actually had, had almost new, no new cases that were from inside their country. They've had some that have come from outside, and their lockdown actually will be partially lifted by April 8th. And I think we all know how aggressive uh, China has been at really uh, keeping people in their homes and how important that was. Yeah, and I think if you're looking at just this huge 113-day history, um you want to ask what's happened in all those days and you know you can google this or go anywhere on internet but as of right now there's been 777,286 confirmed positive cases and this doesn't count all those who never were tested but amongst all of those there have been 37,140 deaths from this pandemic um, which is just really scary especially when you think again just 113 days Kurt so You know, if you're looking at this disease, many people ask, like, what is it? What does it look like? You know, a majority of people will present with fever, cough, shortness of breath. But again, lots of numerous studies in the last 113 days show that not everybody's the same. And you can't really pigeonhole anybody based on one symptom. You know, especially when you're looking at the transition to the United States, there's been some different and new symptoms that have started to be noted, such as things even like diarrhea. So it, it can be very complicated when you're seeing this, especially, you know, Minnesota right now, we're in the middle of um, middle of the end of flu season, the beginning of allergy season. So a lot of this can kind of look like a lot of other things. So when you're a primary doctor and you're starting to look this up and work this up, um, you'll get, you know, a lot of a lot of lab work, especially because that COVID test one is, is really hard to come by uh, in a lot of places. And even if you do, you know, it's not a perfect test. There are a lot of false negatives. So when you're looking at lab work, when you're working up some of these patients, a couple of common things you might see is what we call lymphopenia. So the, the lymphocytes in the blood tend to be a little bit lower. The albumin, a little bit lower. The LDH, the sed rate, the CRP, the ferritin, those are all a little bit more elevated when you're looking at this group of patients as a whole. 
So not only are you having blood work on these patients, a lot of them, especially when they have this cough and shortness of breath, you'll then get imaging on them. Kurt, why don't you maybe walk through some of those common imaging findings you might see? I was just going to say one thing too, and I, I don't, I'm not sure that you talked a little bit about the cough, but you know, all the patients don't have coughs. And I think that really when you look at it, in a lot of the studies, it's been around 80%. And not all the patients have fever. And I think uh, especially in some ERs where if you don't have a fever, they assume that you don't have coronavirus. But remember that not all of the symptoms are found in all of these patients. Yeah, some of these patients are, you know, showing up in some ERs in our country because they were in a trauma or car accident and they find it. And again, a lot of asymptomatic people, and we'll get to that here in a little bit. So let's talk a little bit about some of the radiologic findings. This is, there was actually a, a little uh, article in a, the Academy of Radiology in 2020, so it was just recent. And they actually looked at the spectrum of CT findings uh, and how it kind of progressed. This was actually done uh, initially in, from Chinese uh, cases. And what they've decided is that there's kind of an early phase where these patients will initially have kind of multiple patchy shadows and kind of that interstitial changes, mostly basilar and peripheral. And often these patients will move to more of a progressive uh, disease where they have a lot of lesions that increase in size. They get that what they call GGO or that ground glass opacity capacities will easy for me to say and as well as uh, infiltrating uh, consolidations as patients get more sick and end up in the ICU many of these patients have had this massive uh, severe phase where they get this pulmonary consolidation and basically get that whiteout that uh, that we've seen in other diseases and and uh, interestingly have no pleural effusions typically so it's the the sad part of that is that often these patients uh, as this goes away it leaves fibrosis behind, which has been a complication of this disease. Yeah, and I think uh, you might look at this and you're, you're, I mean, these numbers are just phenomenal. And then you find all these lab things and imaging. And so if you're looking at the whole of coronavirus, like who is it hitting and who's, who's most impacted? Um, if you're looking at just the Chinese literature, which of course, being that it seemed to have originated in China, you're looking at just the 72,000 cases um, that were started there, that were first studied there. The average age, 30 to 79-year-olds, um, made up 87% of the cases. So it's really this more middle-age focus. Um, 81% only had mild to moderate disease. So this is, this is those people who might look like just the common cold. But then when it gets severe, it gets really severe. 14% of patients will have this severe illness. 5% of them often... Uh, needing critical care, ICU beds. And of those that hit the critical care mark, half of them, so 2.3% roughly, um, are fatal um, and don't survive this illness. Um, it ends up typically being you know, related to the ARDS and end-stage lung issues, multiple organ failure. Um, when you're looking at age, 15% of all deaths have been in people over the age of 80. Sadly, um, especially in, in our line of work, being healthcare workers, in China, 3.8% of the people who did um, have pretty significant disease were healthcare workers, five of whom all died. And if you looked at Wuhan in general, 63% of all healthcare workers did catch this illness and get sick and show symptoms. I mean, Kurt, that's just pretty scary to me. Well, I think at that time they had no idea about the transmission. Um, and, and really, I think they, everybody got off, got, off, got off guard. So I think that uh, I think everybody's done a lot better at that, and I think the numbers are significantly improved. So then if you want to look here at more recent, closer-to-home data, Lancet was just published a month ago, um, looking at 99 patients here in the United States. Those patients averaged age 55 and a half. 
two thirds of them were men. For whatever reason, men tend to, to get more sick and I won't make a joke about that right now. A third of these patients were women. Um, but 51% had chronic diseases. So it seems to be the underlying thing that kind of ties this all together. Of those chronic diseases, cardiovascular was the over overriding majority with hypertension actually being the one um, that stood out, um, followed by diabetes and other GI illnesses. That's a- and, that and really that... Uh, the smokers were certainly a, a group that were probably harder hit. Yeah, and there's there's some you know scoring things and all, especially in the Chinese literature, this thing called the MULBSTA score, M U L B S T A score, um, stands for multilobular infiltration, thus on the imaging, lymphopenia, bacterial co-infections, smoking history, the hypertension, and the older age. So what they were starting to show is the higher the score using this MUBS to score, um, the more severe the case was. So I think we'll we'll talk a little bit about, you know, what makes this disease uh, such a problem. And, and there's actually an article in the International Journal of Infectious Diseases on February 20th, again, just a little over a month ago. And one of the things that uh, they found with COVID-19 was that was interesting was really uh, a couple things. Number one, when they looked at uh, the serial interval, and the serial interval is actually that time between successive cases. So if I have uh, COVID-19 and I come in contact with Dr. Bell, how many days is it going to be before she develops the disease? And on average, that's been right around uh, four days. Uh, The median serial interval is actually four days. Now, sadly, the incubation or the amount of time it takes for a patient with with COVID, I keep wanting to say corona, uh, with COVID-19 is actually five days. So the, it takes five days for these patients to have symptoms. And the, the problem with that is, is that that pre-symptomatic spread becomes a, a significant part of this disease. So interesting you bring that up and just to kind of give people... And understanding we are currently sitting more than six feet apart when we're taping this, you know, the whole social distancing thing. But that whole asymptomatic carrier state, and this is why the whole, you know, world is actually focusing on this social distancing, is just that, is that a lot of patients don't have symptoms. And, you know, for a while, at least, you know, in the early days of this disease, you know, 100 days ago or so, um, they felt that patients who had more se- more severe disease or patients who had the disease would have high viral load or high virus in their bodies. But when you actually looked um, at this Taiwanese study, they showed that asymptomatic patients had the same amount of virus on board as symptomatic patients did, which is just phenomenal to me. But for whatever reason, the patients who had severe symptoms did have a hair bit higher, but it wasn't necessarily... Um, straight through. And actually, uh, just literally days ago, the CDC came out in their MMWR, uh, Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Review, actually came out with uh, a little a little topic of, on some of this asymptomatic uh, issue. And, and in fact, when you look at patients who test positive, uh, off of, they were tested positive off one of those, uh, I don't know, cruise, cruise ships. ships? Uh, yeah, I was trying to remember what that was. Off one of the cruise ships. He doesn't get out. I never, I've never taken a cruise. Uh, 46% of the patients, when, when that thing came ashore, actually tested positive, but were asymptomatic at the time. Actually, almost 18% of those patients never got symptoms uh, and, and were, would probably never have been detected unless they had been screened. Uh, and I, I think this is where, again, the whole stay-at-home thing happens because you just never know. You could be that carrier who then goes to the grocery store or goes into the clinic 
And then when you leave, now the next person comes in and they end up getting the disease just because you as an asymptomatic carrier were in there. And so really limiting people getting out and about and um, going to the clinic or uh, to visit socially is just is, is why we're limiting all that. Yeah, and I think that really this has been an issue in many clinics is should healthcare workers be wearing masks at all times, even when they're seeing patients without symptoms or fever, uh, when they're in an area where the disease is. And, and I think that's going to... Uh, that's going to be worked out very quickly in our state, but at this point, that's still an area of contention. Um, I think really one of the interesting things from those cruise liners was was uh, really after they had vacated all of these cabins, they went into these cabins 17 days after these patients had been removed. And in fact, they were still able to find COVID-19 on cabin surfaces that was viable. So we have to understand that this also uh, is an issue. Yeah, when you're speaking of different types of surfaces, um Different types of surfaces have different ability to keep that virus viable. Plastic, couple three days, stainless steel, um, couple days, cardboard, about a day. Copper seems to do the best at eight hours, but definitely different surfaces have the ability to keep that that virus uh, viable. Um, scary and sadly enough, this virus once it's aerosolized, up to three hours it can stay in the air. Um, and so just remembering that this transmission from aerosol and fomites um, make this, this virus definitely viable and infectious for, for numerous hours, whether it's in the air or on surfaces, um, thus helping to spread this virus so quickly. So I think we'll touch a little bit on some of the medications uh, that are used. And actually, the first time we kind of looked at this, it looked like it was going to take me an hour to get through it. But I'm going to very quickly touch on this because at least at the, this point, there's not extensive data uh, there's not great proof that any of these are working well, but uh, the, I'll just touch on the ones that you probably see uh, discussed most often, the first being remdesivir. And this, of course, is a pro-drug of adenosine analog. It's actually investigational. Uh, this was a drug that was actually first brought about uh, because of the Ebola outbreak, and there's been some thought that it had uh, kind of a potent in vitro activity, you know, and it actually has a very long half-life. It's easily dosed because it's once a day. And it actually been shown in rhesus monkeys to cause significant viral suppression. But in some of the studies that have been done, it actually had shown to have increased mortality in the Ebola strains. And so actually was pulled from those studies. But they're still looking at it for uh, use in this particular problem. And in fact, there was actually uh, uh, 12 patients that have been treated. I believe that was in Washington. And um, it's interesting that three of the first 12 all recovered, and actually none of them uh, really had comparison treatments to, to you know, really know whether or not it was a, a significant improvement. But uh, they did believe that there was improvement in their condition much more than they would have expected. But still, this is a com compassionate use drug, and there are disqualifying factors. So I think that uh, more will be to come, and uh, that's something we'll talk about uh, down the road. Well, what about the... Hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, that seems to be out there a lot. Yeah, and, and actually both chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine have been discussed. Uh, you know, of course, chloroquine being that antimalarial drug, uh, there's been a study with, by Wang and colleagues that uh, demonstrated that it did have some in vitro activity against this. It's a, it's a drug that has some promising early results in February, but again, this is uh, far from over as far as knowing that it's going to be helpful. Uh, there's been a number of uh, other studies, Gao and colleagues did well over 100 patients and had controls for those 100 patients, and chloroquine was found to be superior as far as uh, inhibiting pneumonias, improving lung imaging, and, and really conversion to uh, negative tests. So I think that's probably the one that's gotten the most attention, uh, but hydrochloroquine 
chloroquine actually, because it has less side effects, uh, there there is some thought that that may also be uh, a, something to look at. And there have been some studies with that as well. But again, nothing that has been super solid yet. So I think one thing before you get into the last drug you want to talk about is just to really point out that a lot of these meds, as you've said, are not proven or not, you know, obviously made for this. Um, and in a couple, next week, actually, we're going to have a PharmD that, that knows these meds ins and outs and Hopefully we'll have a little bit more medication information in another week of studies. Yeah, and I think they'll probably have some much more up-to-date things uh, even just a week or two down the road. And just remember, as clinicians, you should be really cautious about uh, using these medications due to the small numbers that have been studied. I think really the last thing to, to think about is the corticosteroids, and I think that's got some attention. But the reality is that the data for the corticosteroids used in this particular disease have been rather inconsistent, a bit confusing, and I think most would say inconclusive, at least at this point. Uh, lastly, and uh, finally, I'll just say that there are some drugs that have thought to have more risk than benefit, and that would include Tamiflu, uh, ribavirin, and veloxavir. All right. Easier said than done, I guess. Yes. Um, so before we say thank you, we just want to really say thank you first to our partners in all of this. Obviously, the state emergency response team, Dr. Hick, um, Stratus Health, who's helping fund this, as is DHS funding, and then other partners that we have involved with this, M- MHA, MMA, MDH, and of course, the MAFP, Minnesota Academy of Family Physicians, um, joining rounding out that Minnesota Hospital Association, Minnesota Medical Association, um, to bring this to you all, helping us um, get this information up to date and unified. You're probably forgetting one person, my friend Joe Helley, who's actually got us into this whole thing. So thank you, Joe. We're going to make this all work Mm -hmm. for the state of Minnesota. Yeah, so thank you for joining us on this, our very first special edition COVID Echo um, podcast, and we will continue to have State Command Center updates summarized for you each Thursday and Tuesday night starting this Thursday. And it always, always, always stay healthy, stay safe. Stay connected. Thank you very much.